Um, so now I have the honor of introducing our, uh, what's the <laughs> word? <laughs> our speaker for today, Elder Eric. He's been faithfully serving the church uh, campus and his family for years. Years, y'all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was a campus missionary, and um, at uh, in, in Nashville, and even in D.C. And so now we have an honor to hear from him today, our Elder Eric Stevens. All right. Good morning. Appreciate that introduction, Jasmine Orr. As we learned in Israel, Yasmin. It's funny, we're ordering food and they're like, Yasmin. And I'm like, who's Yasmin? It's like, oh, it's Jasmine. So, want to welcome you all uh, to Campus Sunday. Uh, definitely a special Sunday uh, that we don't just want to necessarily gloss over or take for granted because God has in true, it truly done some great things on the college campus. I was reached on the college campus as an 18 year old at Tennessee State University, the other TSU. Uh, and I remember just really the impact that the campus staff had on my life in redirecting me to where God was calling me to be. And really just want to say I appreciate the staff on campus and the work that you all are doing because you are indeed directing people to a purpose and destiny that God has called them to. And that's not something that you ever want to take for granted. Um, as, as Jazz mentioned, uh, Every Nation Ministries, we're part of a, a larger global family. Uh, we have churches in 81 countries, and we have 114 more to go. Uh, we also have chapters on 1,900 campuses all over the world. And again, the goal is to have a campus chapter on every campus around the nation and around the world. And I am a byproduct of being reached on the college campus. Uh, but really, that started when I was 12 years old. My uncle Jimmy... Uh, sent me a letter, and it was Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, remember your God in the days of your youth. And it's amazing that as I would grow older, I would never be able to shake this verse. I was not saved, wasn't serving God, wasn't going to church, but yet it was interesting that no matter where I went, the echoes of what God was calling me to do or what God was doing in my heart were eminent. Remember your God in the days of your youth. So much so that as I progressed through high school and it was time to look for a college, I was trying to remember my God in the days of my youth. So I signed up to go to a college and become a pastor. I decided to go to seminary. Again, not saved. Remember your God in the days of your youth. And I remember filling out this college application and in this application, there was a clear box that said, are you saved and do you believe in Jesus? I was like, no. I received the letter in the mail saying, congratulations. We want to welcome you to our university. Not only that, but we want to cover your tuition. And I got 90% coverage for my tuition. Remember your God in the days of your youth. So the same call is on every single person in this room. Remember your God in the days of your youth. It's the opportunity right now that God has to speak and minister to you in order to project you to the place that you're going to make an impact in your generation. Yeah. 
Remember your God in the days of your youth. We've been going through the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 22. And how many of you enjoyed the uh, Genesis series that we've been going over? We've been going through our summer series in the book of Genesis. We're in chapter 22. And as we start reading this, there's some questions that are going to come up and pop up that are very obvious. And we hope as we go through that to answer some of those. Let's pray real quick. Father, this morning our hope and, and goal is to know that you are present, you are near, and that, God, you're able to help us in our time of need. Father, there are many people here who need your direction. They need an intervention from you. And I pray, Father, you would do that this morning for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen. Genesis 22, we'll start in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for a burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar off. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy would go over there and worship and come again to you. It's interesting, the passage starts off with saying, after these things, well, what things are we talking about? In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram at the time and he says, Abram, come out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I am going to make your name great. I am going to give you a son. I am going to give you an inheritance like the sand of the seashore, like the stars of the sky, so that no person can number them. This is vitally important because Abram is 75 years old and him and, his Sarah, him and Sarah, his wife, are barren. 75 years old, he hears this. He comes out of his country to a place he's never been. Never been. All because God has spoken to him and intervened in his life. And he's willing to be obedient to follow him. So immediately after God speaks to him in chapter 12, he goes into Egypt, lies about his wife. Oh, she's really my sister, which is kind of weird. He comes out, and God has blessed them. Even in his, in, in his trial in Egypt, God has blessed them to where now him and his nephew are having conflict. They have to separate. They each go their separate ways. His nephew gets kidnapped a chapter later. Abram goes to rescue him, right, from the people who kidnapped him, meets this figure, Melchizedek, which is a mysterious figure in Scripture because he has no beginning, no end, right, a figure of Christ. And then after that, there's another war that happens, right, a regional war where he has to participate. You get to chapter 21, and they've already rationalized, well, uh, we still don't have a child. Maybe God meant we're supposed to have this child by Hagar. So he marries Hagar. They have a child, and God is clearly saying, this is not the path nor the plan that I had for you. And so he has to send Hagar and Ishmael away. But that chapter in, verse, in chapter 21 also, Isaac is born. And Isaac is whom God said the blessing will occur. 
So when you get to chapter 22, verse 1, after these things, those are the things that we're talking about. We're talking about a person who encountered God at 75 years old. He has Isaac at 100 years old. And now Isaac is a little bit older. But yet he has lived through so many different things that he has a confidence in God now that he didn't have before. As we walk with God, the goal is that we continue to go from strength to strength so that the same persecutions and trials that had us bogged down before wouldn't hold us now from the destiny and purpose that God has called us to. And it's interesting, we just don't want to gloss over this because God calls them to offer his son, the one whom he loves. And what's interesting about that passage is because there's already a bond that's taken place. Again, he has waited for this child for over 25 years. I don't know about you, but once God has promised you something, the longer you wait for it and the time that God gives you that thing, whatever it might be, you're bonded to it. You're like, thank you, God, I'm not letting this go. And God tells him, I want you to offer your son as a burnt offering. Burnt offering in terms of, that's where we get the term holocaust. A complete devastation is about to take place. God is asking him to do this. Now the question is, what exactly is going through his head right now to even be able to face this instance and in, in this trial successfully? What is going through his head? And I, I'm so great, grateful and glad for Hebrews 11. It's not on the screen, but Hebrews chapter 11 verses uh, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19 says this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring will be named. Here's the part where it lets you into the mindset of Abraham. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. It's interesting that Abraham is believing in something that scripturally has never happened before. God hasn't raised anybody from the dead before. But his faith is so locked into what God has for him and who God is he rationalizes and says, even though I have never seen this occur, I believe that it's possible for God to raise my son from the grave, so I am going to be obedient to him. Our first point, our faith requires obedience, and our obedience is worship. Luke 6, 46 says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the very things that I ask you to do? Our faith requires that we're obedient to God and not rationalize and go, well, God, you didn't give me the details of how this is going to work out. So before I trust you and move in faith, I need a little bit more details about what you're going to do, how you're going to do it, so I can trust you 100%. If there's ever a place where you do dumb things, it's the college campus. Okay, if somebody's never taken that hashtag, take it now. College students do dumb things. I remember when I was a college student, 18 years old, and during the summers, I never liked going home. 
So I had been bonding with my brothers on the campus, and we're like, man, if we go back, if we go back home, we're just going to fall into the same sinful habits that we were in. So what should we do? Let's just, let's just all room together. Let's just get a place where we can all stay together. We can stay here in the summer. We can grow in God. And I remember during the summer, we're looking for a place. There are very few places that you're going to house 11 people, 11 guys in college who have absolutely no idea what responsibility is, who don't clean anything, who don't make their beds. Not a lot of people, but we found one. We found one generous soul who was like, man, I hear you guys are looking for a place. And we're like, yeah, how many of you guys? 11 people. And he was like, you guys can stay in my house. And we're like, praise God. This guy just has a heart for God, loves college students. And he was like, what do we have to pay for rent? And he said $400 a month for each person. Do the math real quick. We said, praise God. We found a place to stay. $400 a month times 11 people, okay? Later we found out his mortgage was $895. There's a reason he was so generous. But again, you're in college. You don't care about that. You're pursuing God. God, I would do whatever I need to do. I'm going to live with my brothers this summer. We're going to grow in God. And this guy's like, yes, just want to bless you guys. Just want to bless you guys, give you a place to stay. Forget the fact that it's $4,400 a month that you're paying. Just want to bless you guys. And we're like, yes! We're eating 39-cent cheeseburgers at McDonald's on Wednesday, Pop-Tarts, hot dogs. We're fine. And looking back now, I'm like, $4,400 a month? That's ridiculous. But looking back, we're still relationally bonded, every single one of those guys who lived in that house. The price that we paid, no matter how egregious it was, doesn't compare to the bond and what God was doing in our lives. Our faith requires obedience, and obedience is worship. As I mentioned earlier, when I got saved on the college campus as an 18-year-old, I felt the call of God on my life to go into ministry. And here I was as an engineering student, and I'm like, God, how exactly are you going to reconcile these things? How am I going to be an engineering major and yet go and do full-time ministry? How does all of that go together? There's not really an easy road of how all this stuff comes together. And again, I just remember God saying, just be obedient. Your obedience is worship. Your obedience is worship. Leave it to me. I'll figure it all out. I'm like, all right, God, I'll, I'll obey you. And it's interesting because I used to see all my classmates having internships while I went to Campus Harvest Conferences. They would go to these corporations and, and like, man, I just, three months I was there, they were like, they're going to hire me. And I'm like, well, you know, I was here for the summer, you know, with the whole, you know, did the whole Old Testament, which was really cool, grew in the Lord. they am like, ah, oh, you going to work when you graduate? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to work when I graduate. God was doing amazing things in our lives. Again, responding to this call of ministry. So, Graduated from college with an engineering degree, went off to Fuller Theological Seminary, came back, served for three and a half years on the college campuses at Tennessee State University, Vanderbilt University, really giving our lives and heart to God and saying, God, we just want to make an impact. Not understanding, not knowing all the details of how everything would work out, but we just had a conviction of, I'll do it. I'm not going to sit here and worry about how it's going to be done. I'll do it. Now, I remember 
three and a half years on the campus, and there came a time where God was transitioning me out of full-time ministry to go into working vocation, uh, uh, engineering, right? And I was like, God, just want to remind you again, not an easy transition. But during that time period, I actually had the opportunity to work at the church as a janitor, one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I'm not even trying to be sarcastic about it because I had this gentleman by the name of Chris Clark. I remember Chris Clark called me and said, Eric, I am the lead janitor here and I am going to be your mentor. And in my head, I was like, Chris Clark, I have an engineering degree and I don't need a mentor. Chris was like, Eric, you do. And God was working humility in my heart. And Chris would go, Eric, and he would take the brush and he goes, let me show you how to clean a toilet. I'm like, Chris, you just flushed the toilet. This isn't complex. He's like, Eric, there's a particular way in which you clean the toilet and have it be clean. So got the brush and Chris would demonstrate how to clean the toilet properly, how to get underneath the crevices and clean it and make it perfect. And during that time, I remember God would speak to me because here I am, again, cleaning the toilet with an engineering degree and going, I think I'm in the wrong place. And I would think of the passages in the Old Testament where God is looking for a king of Israel and he sends a prophet to the house of Jesse. And he's saying to Jesse, I want you to bring all of your sons to me. And Jesse brings all of his sons with the exception of one, David. David is in the back. He smells like poop. He's with the animals, and Jesse's probably ashamed of him. He's like, uh, all of these are respectable. Not this one, though. He's a janitor. And I remember those passages going through my head and God reaffirming in my soul and saying, if I found David and was able to raise him up as a king over Israel, I am able to find you, even if you're a janitor at the church. And I was like, God, I trust you. So here I am cleaning the bathroom, and at the same time, I had to put out my resume. Again, God's transitioning me out of ministry, and I'm like, so, resume time, right? What exactly do you put on your resume if you've done campus ministry and you're trying to be an engineer? So I put on there about what God had done in my life. I just shared my testimony. God has saved me, and over the last three years, I've been on the college campus giving my life to really see uh, God impact the lives of kids, and I also have been cleaning the bathroom. I put that. And 24 hours after I put that resume out, the CEO of an engineering company in Nashville said, hey, I want you to come in for an interview. And I was like, uh, I just, I literally pressed send, and this is like a trick, right? You, I'm, you're catfishing me. I think you are, before catfishing. And he's like, no, I want you to come in for an interview. So I walk into the interview completely unprepared, and all the guys, so he's like, so I heard you served on the college campus. And I was like, yeah. He's like, tell me about it. So I begin to share my testimony about what God was doing in my heart and in the hearts of students on the college campus. And he goes, I want to hire you. Your obedience is worship. Our role is to never understand how these things all connect. God connects the dots for you. Your job is to be obedient to him. He will supply every single thing that you will ever need. 
So this gentleman who owns the company goes, I want you to start, I want you to be the branch coordinator for my business. It's a construction GPS uh, engineering business. I'm like, okay. But I told him under one caveat, I have to clean the restrooms. And he goes, that's just weird, but okay. So it's funny because when people came into the place where we were, they would always go, man, that restroom sure is clean. And they're like, it's that guy there. He has some kind of funny fascination about cleaning the restroom. Really passionate about it, so don't even say. And it's funny because they had people who they had contracted out to clean the restroom. But for me, there was something that God was doing in my soul that was much more precious than what was happening on the physical. Because God would speak to me every time I would serve him in that manner. Again, he promised me, I will find you no matter where you are. No matter where you are, I will find you. Your job is to be obedient. So again, as odd as they found it, they allowed me to clean the restroom. And when I got hired, they actually doubled the pay that I'd been earning in ministry. I was like, praise God. Praise God. Twelve months would pass, I would get another phone call. A CEO of a nuclear power plant here in Texas. Hey, I would like you to come work for me. What? This doesn't make sense. I'd, come, I'd like you to come work for me as an engineer. Like, you know, I have no nuclear engineering. I know what you have. So I go down there for the interview, and I'm sitting there. And again, you guys remember the difficulty that I had with putting together my resume, right? Yeah. Served at the college campus, also love cleaning the bathrooms. That is literally all I had as a testimony. So I remember sitting before this interview panel, these three gentlemen who were supervisors over the engineering department, and the question came up, Eric, what is going to distinguish you from any other person in the country who walks through these doors and wants to work at a nuclear power plant? Why should we hire you? And the light went on. Nobody could clean the bathroom like me. <laughs> Nobody on this planet can clean the bathroom like me. So I sat there, and with full confidence, I looked them all in the eye. And I wasn't kidding. I was being very literal. And I said, if you hire me, I will come into work early. And before my shift, I will clean every restroom in this building. And I was serious. And they looked at me, and afterwards, they kind of gave me some insights on what they were looking for. They're like, Eric, what's interesting is that we get people who walk into this building every day with the fanciest degrees and know-it-all and have no experience. But when they come in, they think they're the greatest thing that's ever walked the planet. You walked in with a sense of humility, and your comment and your statement about cleaning the bathroom, we know you meant that figuratively. You were just trying to be humble. I'm like, no, seriously, I will clean y'all's bathrooms. <laughs> I was being serious. Again, your obedience is worship. And I like to say that when they did hire me, again, they doubled the salary from the previous year that I received. Praise God. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took his hand and the fire and the knife. 
So they, both, they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son when you read this text understand this Abraham is serious about what he is going to do and what God has asked him to do he's serious about it and many of you, God has called you to lay aside certain things in order to worship him with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. But a lot of times you rationalize and say, God, I'm not exactly sure how all this is going to work out. It's not your job to understand. Point number two, our faith has to impact the next generation. It's interesting the exchange that Abraham has with Isaac because if I was to put myself in Isaac's situation, I am saying, Father, why are you tripping? I'm not saying, Father, where's the lamb? I'm saying, Father, why have you lost your mind? That's just me. And it's funny because when you see the exchange between the two, after Abraham tells him, God will provide, there's not any more conversation. And I really believe that Abraham had over time communicated to Isaac all the things that he had experienced. So Isaac had been hearing stories of how God had come through for Abraham over and over and over and over. And as he's relaying this information, Isaac can then say, although I don't understand it all, I know from the stories that you've shared with me that God is going to do something, although we don't know what. God's called us to impact the next generation. I remember uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to officiate my uncle's wedding. And so it was in Uganda, so we fly over there. At the time, we had two kids, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. We fly over there, and it's anybody who's ever taken kids to a wedding, you know what's about to happen. They're not going to sit still. They're going to elbow each other, probably run around at the most inopportune time, and yes, it happened. So I'm sitting there sharing these scriptures that I thought were powerful about how a man should treat his wife loving, caring for, and I looked down, and my kids were just elbowing each other and not paying attention at all. And in my mind, I would go, what is wrong with these kids? What is wrong with them? Fast forward, we'll get back here in Texas, and my wife and I were having an argument, uh, sorry, a passionate discussion. <laughs> we don't argue, okay? We just have passionate discussions. It was so passionate that we decided to take the discussion to the bedroom and close the door, and all you could hear from the other side of the door is yelling, because my wife is like, why, la, 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 la. <clears throat> and, guys, you, you, you're going to know this. A lot of times we consider people who are not very emotional to be the right in a conversation or an argument like that, right? Somebody who's posh is like, 
surely anyone who sees this argument, I mean, discussion will not think that I am in the wrong because she is the one who's yelling at me. That's how this works. So the doors closed, my kids on the other side, and all you could hear is my wife going off. And I'm just like, the kids are listening. I will be postured. I will not raise my voice in Jesus' name. So I come out of the room, and on the door, there's this green construction paper with some funny five-year-old handwriting that you can't even make out because all the words are spelled wrong. And this is what's written on this construction paper. Dad, when we went to Uncle Jimmy's wedding and you were telling Uncle Jimmy how he is to treat his wife, was that only for Uncle Jimmy or was that for you as well? So I spanked the child. No, I'm kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Maybe I'm not. No, I'm kidding. Seriously. And it's funny because, so I grabbed this paper, and both my kids, the five-year-old and three-year-old, are sitting on the couch, and they're looking at my face. And I look at them, and I say, who wrote this? And Josh was like, she did it. And I look at my daughter, and I say, thank you. You were listening. God's called us to impact the next generation, whether we think we're doing it or not. They're always watching, always observing, always taking notes, and always ready to convict you as a parent. Our faith has to impact the next generation. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy, do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of, the, called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is in the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his, of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. Last point is our faith calls us to trust God's provision, namely God himself. You know, a lot of times when you look back in your life, you see the very times that God has provided for you. It might be a scholarship might be restoring your health, whatever it is. And a lot of times we have a habit of looking towards that provision and holding God hostage to that very provision that he's provided rather than looking at God himself. 
Yes, God provides, but ultimately God wants you to know that he himself is the provision, not what you're getting. November 10th, 2013, my wife and I came to church that Sunday. We served in children's ministry, went home, and that afternoon my wife was like, my legs are starting to hurt. I just feel like laying down, and she laid down in the bed, took a nap for a couple hours, woke up and said, it's getting worse. I almost can't feel my arms anymore. Something is wrong and something is happening in my body. We rushed to the emergency room, not knowing exactly what was happening. And God is so providential because as we're there in the emergency room, the person there immediately goes, I'm calling an ambulance and you gotta head downtown to the medical center immediately. And we're just like, well, we just want you to prescribe something. You know, we could go back home. And although she wouldn't tell us the details of exactly what was happening, she was like, you need to go right now. So an ambulance shows up and we head downtown. We get to the emergency room at St. Luke's. And again, doctors are coming in and performing all kinds of tests. Nobody says anything. The very next day, my wife is paralyzed from waist down. 24 hours, paralyzed. The doctor comes in and says, I'm sorry to say this, but your wife has a very rare, rare neurological condition that only happens to like 1,400 people in the entire nation in a year. 1,400 people. It's called transverse myelitis. And what happens is that your spinal cord gets inflamed to where your brain can no longer send signals to the rest of your body to do certain things. So my wife's spinal cord was inflamed and her brain would no longer send messages to her foot to say move or her, or her hands. She was paralyzed. So she's sitting there in the bed and just kind of thinking everything that God has brought us through and how God has been providential for us. And it's funny because at the very same moment it hit my wife, it also hit me this conviction of God is good. God is absolutely good. And it was kind of weird, to be honest, because as we're sitting there, we're sharing what God is doing in her heart and my heart, and we're building each other up. And here come the experts in the room with dark and gloomy news, and our response is, God is so good, isn't he? And they look at us and go, they probably don't understand the complexity of what's happening here to their body, and so they're kind of delusional. We were absolutely convinced that regardless of what happens in her physical body, whether she would be healed or not, God was still good because God himself was the ultimate provision, not the fact that she could walk, but God is the provision. We didn't know it would take six to eight months for her to actually relearn how to walk again. But the story that came out of that is even before she was healed, we were prepared like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If God rescues us, great. If he doesn't, great. He's still good. That was our posture and our conviction. And I'm telling you, Abraham reached the, the, the exact same conclusion 
is that it wasn't in the fact that the ram was there. It was like God was good regardless of how this situation played out. You know, this morning, I don't know where you are spiritually with God I and mean, your relationship with God, but one of the things that you have to understand this morning is, number one, God desires that you have a relationship with him. Your obedience is a form of worship. So whatever God has called you to do, do it. Our job is, is not to figure out how the dots connect. God, if you're called me to walk away from this relationship that is not giving you glory, how is all this going to work out? If you've called me to switch majors, this doesn't make sense. How, how, how is all that going to work out? It's not your job to figure it out. Your job is to obey. God takes care of everything else. Let's pray. God, this morning, we declare in our hearts that you are our provision. And God, we won't sit here and try to analyze or try to figure out exactly how you would do what you do. But we know that you're God and you're able to provide anything that we would ever need. But God, more than anything that you can provide for us, we need you, Lord, to provide yourself to us. We need you above anything else, Lord. Help us trust you for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.